the last time when I preached through the book of Romans, I tried to preach on verses 24 to 31 in one sermon and miserably failed. So having learned from previous mistakes, I'm going to focus this morning simply on verses 24 to 27, and God willing, next time that I speak, which should be the first Sunday in November, uh, deal with 28 to 31. So I'm just going to read this morning verses 24 to 27. Therefore, God gave them up through the lusts of their hearts to uncleanness, unto their degradation of their bodies, literally, unto their bodies to be degraded by them. Such who exchange God's truth with the counterfeit, or with the false, and honored and served the creation rather than the one who created, who is blessed to the ages. Amen. On account of this, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their females replaced the natural use with the unnatural, literally, with the against nature. Similarly, also the males, forsaking the natural use with the female, were inflamed by their desire for one another. Males with males doing something shameful, literally, doing the shameful thing, and getting back in themselves the necessary or due consequence of their aberration. Um, Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Father, we are totally dependent on you. Scripture says, the one who has my word, let him tell it faithfully. We pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your word would be told faithfully, and your name would be honored and glorified because you're worthy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Rather than have a 20-minute introduction, I decided to take that long introduction and turn it into the first point. So I have today a word of explanation, or if you prefer, a 20-minute introduction. Then a word of exposition, and finally a word of application. Now. Don't you think that when you deal with something so fancy as 20-minute introductions that we ought to come up with a better word for those? Oh, here you go. What what do you think the theologians would call a 20-minute introduction? Prolegomena. So this is a word being said beforehand, a word of explanation. I want to explain 
I want to put this message into perspective. And because it is too long for even prolegomena. So I first preached through Romans 13 years ago in 2008. And I remember then that I was feeling deep emotion when I was preaching. And I've learned over the years that when you feel this deep emotion, you get up in the pulpit and this stuff starts gushing out. It scares the living daylights out of people. Because they don't have the same kind of deep emotion that you have. And they say, what is wrong with this man? Why is he gushing all this feeling all over me? Stay away from me. And so, rather than scare the living daylights out of you, I want to, first of all, see? was closed. What I want to do, what I want to do is I want to try to explain why I feel what I feel this morning. Thank you, brother. It would be my privilege. I, I, he that has my word, let him speak it faithfully. My concern is the honor and glory of God. But I'm not angry this morning. I want to be very clear. I love the principles on which our republic was founded. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created created equal and endowed by their creator, capital C. Those are the principles on which our republic was founded with unalienable rights and that to secure these God-given rights of the creator, governments are instituted among men. As I say, I'm not angry, but my heart is especially burdened for our society. I have continual sadness, grief in my heart, even though I'm speaking about the wrath of God. I feel sad about our republic. I feel sad and grieved about our society because what I see is that we are more and more experiencing the wrath of God. Wherefore, God, gave them up. Why did God give up that pagan society of Paul's day? What did they do? They suppressed, as we saw last time, about a month ago, the truth in unrighteousness. What truth did they suppress? God's existence. The existence of the unoriginated power and intelligent design of the creator and the evidence that they saw of his originated power and intelligent design in everything that was made. The whole world has stamped on it, created in heaven by an almighty, intelligent creator. And they see it. And they don't want to admit that they see it. Instead, they suppress it, reject it, deny it. You mean that agnosticism, oh, I don't know if there's a God. You mean that's a lie? Yes, it's a lie. It's 
It's not true. You mean people know that there's a God? Yes, they know. You mean that they see the evidence of intelligent design and unoriginated power in creation and suppress what they see? Yes, that's what Paul said. Well, how does God respond to that? Wherefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. It's repeated three times. Even as they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up. They exchanged the truth of God for for the falsehood, for the lie. God gave them up. For this reason, for this cause, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to degradation. God gave them up to deviation. God gave them up to degeneration. He gave them up to degradation. Verse 24 and 25. He gave them up to deviation. Verse 26 and 27. He gave them up to degeneration. Verses 28 to 31. Now what did God do to them? To give them over to these things? Absolutely nothing. Just said, go do whatever you want. He withdrew the restraining influences of his common grace and just said to people, you don't want to admit what you know to be true about me from creation? Go be yourself. And when God withdraws, gives them up, abandons them to themselves, what do they do? They live in degradation, deviation, and degeneration. That's how they live. That's how our society lives. And it's because God has given them up. And why has he given them up? Because they refuse to have God in their knowledge because they reject the light of nature and what they know to be true about God and creation. Say, did Paul actually really write that? Oh, yes, he did. Now, can you say things like this? And and why, what is the spirit and the demeanor? So why do I feel sad? I feel sad about our society because what I see is that we are more and more experiencing the wrath of God. God gave them up as we accelerate at warp speed into post-Christian culture as we more and more live in a society under the controlling influence of the false doctrine of evolution that humans evolve from animals by chance, that human life has no meaning, that there is no creation and no creator and no created value and no created God-given rights, no created value as God's image, no creator who made humans male and female, as our society becomes more and more secular. God has nothing to do with life. More and more humanistic. It's all about man. 
and humanity and human power and human wisdom more and more totalitarian. God did not give anyone, the Creator didn't give anyone unalienable rights or set any limits on human government. Well, if there's no God-given rights, then government wasn't instituted to secure those God-given rights. We but, as we move more and more away from creation, we move more and more away from the idea of the creator and God-given rights and government instituted to secure those rights and we become more and more totalitarian. It's going on before our eyes, folks. How does that make you feel? You, could you just be indifferent to that? Now, if I just started out without saying, all, I started gushing all this feeling. You said, stay away from me. But do you start to feel something, too? Does that make you sad? Doesn't it grieve your soul? Doesn't it? You see what's going on? Where we're headed? And what's happening right before our eyes? It's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. God gave them up. And for this reason, what I feel is a growing sadness. And yet, here's my point. And that's why I have to take 20 minutes to introduce this and give you an explanation. Because this really has to be the first point. It can't be an introduction. It's way too right? It's not without hope. The whole point of Romans chapter 1 is hope. Why do you say that? Because he's explaining why people need Christ. He's explaining why they need to be saved. This is not written out of hate or out of... I'm going to knock the place apart. It's not written out of hate. It's not written out of despair. It's written out of hope. 1 Corinthians. So I begin with a word of hope. The gospel comes couched in hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Be not deceived. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with men, thieves, Covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about a society living in degeneration, deviation, and degradation. And he says, yet there's hope. Look at this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The churches are full of people that were living in degradation, deviation, and degeneration. They were living like that with all those horrible sins to which God had given up the society and God saved them and delivered them through the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, on the ground of the blood and righteousness of Jesus, 
He saved and delivered people from all of that display of the wrath of God. Blessed be his name. And the churches were filled with people that had been redeemed by grace. So even though we feel sad, and even though we see our society more and more as it rejects the knowledge of God, the creator abandoned by God to degradation, deviation, and degeneration, even as we see that, we don't see it and we don't mourn over it without hope. But rather, in hope, we speak about it. In hope, we declare it. Because the power of God and the grace of God in the gospel are able to deliver sinners from that divine abandonment. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 1. That's the whole context of Romans chapter 1. He says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. The wrath of God presently here in which God gave them up. And he talks about that in order to tell them that there's hope of deliverance from sin and wrath in Christ. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, not only do we speak about these things in hope, and now I'm starting to think that this is more than an introduction. I'm starting to think it's a whole sermon. <laughs> not only do we, do we speak about these things in hope, but we also speak about these things with a gospel demeanor of gospel compassion and humility. But goodwill and humility, not in a superior or judgmental attitude. But look at what he says. Look how he also couches it in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. After he summarizes the wrath of God on Gentile and Jew alike by nature, he says, what then? Verse 9, are we better than they? No. In no wise, for we before laid to the charge both of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, that they're all under sin. We're not better than those that have been abandoned to their own ways and are living in degradation, deviation, degeneration. Are we better than they are? Absolutely not. We don't say these things with a judgmental attitude as though somehow we are morally superior, Paul says. We don't look down on them as though we're better than they are. Are we better than they? God forbid, no way. I deserve to go to hell as much as anyone that Paul describes in verses 24 to 31 in general, and in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 1 in particular. But I'm not going to hell. And they don't have to go either. People living in degradation and deviation don't have to go to hell. Such were some of you. And you were washed. And there but for the grace of God go I. Paul is not speaking out of hate speech or out of phobia, fear speech. He wrote in love and in goodwill and in compassion and in humility. And in that spirit, I am to expound and I am about to expound what he wrote. 
in the same demeanor of gospel goodwill and compassion, not hatred or irrational fear of people, but out of goodwill and compassion and the acknowledgement. What? Are we any better? No. There but for the grace of God go I. And I deserve to go to hell as much as anyone described by Paul in verses 24 to 27. But such were some of you and you were washed. I'm not going. And they don't have to go either. See the spirit in which this is written? And then discretion, one other thing, discretion. And that is, you have to use special precaution when you're talking about the kind of things that Paul's talking about in verses 24 to 27. He says that the things done in secret, it's a shame even to speak about in public. We must be careful about what we say and how we say it. We can't go wrong if we go as far as Scripture goes and expound exactly what Scripture means by what it says, if I expound to you accurately, carefully, and discreetly the words of Scripture, that can't be wrong because what this says is inspired. But we have to be discreet and not go beyond what the Scripture says. Now, why all this word of explanation? A whole point, a whole prolegomena. Things being said beforehand. Why all this? Because what he writes in verses 24 to 27, you're going to hear things today that may sound radical to some of you. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit things that we need to hear, yet things that may be very unpopular. And we must never be ashamed of Christ Never be ashamed of the word of God in the midst of a generation that doesn't like it. Yet at the same time, we must be very careful about how we speak the word of God. Never with self-righteousness or an arrogant air of moral superiority, but with compassion and goodwill and hope. So with that, let's hear God's holy word. Exposition. What did he exactly say? First of all, he says, God gives them up to degradation. Why do I pick the word degradation? Because he says, unto their, in verse 24, unto their degradation of their bodies. Now, what is he talking about when he says, God gave them up through the lusts of their heart to uncleanness? unto their degradation of their bodies. It's divine abandonment to degradation. He's talking about sexual uncleanness. He's talking about violations of the creation ordinance of marriage. He's talking about porneia, translated fornication. He's talking about people behaving in such a way that they have sexual relationships outside of marriage. It could be promiscuous, which is having many transient sexual relationships. 
Like Jesus said to the woman, you've had seven husbands and the man you have now isn't your husband. Or it could simply be having sexual partners without having any marriage commitment to them. And then he says, how is the means of this? It says, through the lust or desire of their hearts. Sexual immorality always starts in the heart. And before long, sexual immorality going on in the heart, unchecked, gives rise to outward bodily sexual sinning. Like he says, the one who commits fornication sins against his own body. The impact of this is literally unto their bodies to be dishonored by them or unto their degradation of their bodies, which is why I use the word degradation. The one that commits fornication, Paul says, sins against his own body. They degrade and dishonor their own bodies. They devalue their own bodies. Now why is this so? Because when a person has a sense of their value of as a human being, they realize that their body is not to be used that way. But when you have a loss of your own personal value and dignity as the image of God, it has a tendency to give rise to fornication and promiscuity. Life has no meaning. Your body has no inherent value or dignity or worth. So what does it matter what you do with it? That's the idea of degradation. So a lifestyle of fornication and promiscuity is self-degradation. It grows out of a loss of your own personal dignity and worth. He's talking about violations of the ordinance of marriage that God ordained as the means for all sexual Only in marriage. We read from Genesis 2.24, Genesis 1.26-28, that God instituted and ordained marriage between a man and a woman as the context for procreative activity. That's it. And when people reject the creator, God gives them up the lust of their hearts to uncleanness such that their bodies experience being degraded by themselves. The sexual revolution is not a step forward. It's a step backward. A huge step backward. 
Secondly, the second feature of what the apostle mentions, and as I say, I can't get to all three of them this morning, only the first two. First, divine abandonment to degradation to sexual uncleanness. Secondly, divine abandonment to deviation to dishonorable sexual passions. Verses 26 and 27. For this cause, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their females replaced the natural use with the unnatural, literally, the against nature. Similarly, also the males, forsaking the natural use of the female, burned in their lust toward one another. Males with males doing something shameful, literally doing the shameful thing, and receiving in themselves the due or necessary consequence or recompense of their aberration. Now, he begins by once again underscoring the reason that God withdraws the restraining influence of his common grace and gives a society over to its own ways so that deviation, dishonorable sexual passions become very commonplace, more commonplace in that society for this cause. The rejection of the creator and the knowledge of creation. We should not be shocked to discover that in a society that rejects the knowledge of creator, there is an increase both of uncleanness and of deviation. First of all, he describes females and deviation among females. For their females replace the natural use with that which is against nature. And when he describes this, he highlights one distinguishing feature of this deviation. And that is that it is unnatural, or that it is against nature, that it is contrary to the created design and use of the female procreative faculties. Now, in order to understand that, you have to understand, you have to know what it means to be female. How does the Bible define female? Does it define female? And if so, how does it define female? Well, I don't think that there's anything wrong with explaining to you the biblical concept of female. The Bible is very explicit about it. 
Remember I told you when we were reading the book of Genesis that in the Hebrew, the word for female is nukeba? Remember that? Like many Hebrew nouns, that Hebrew word is related to a verb. And that verb is nakab. And do you know what that word means? You know what it means, nakab, in Hebrew? It means to drill a hole. That's what it means. Say, that's what the word means? Yeah. In 2 Kings 12.9, but Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. Nakab. Bored a hole in it. Drilled a hole in the chest. Nakab. And other passages, same use. Say, well, what's the, how's that connected with female? What did the creator do? To put it very directly, he built the female by drilling a hole. By, not with a physical drill, but with his creative power, by creating in her a procreative faculty that is a receptive socket. That's what he did. That's why she's called Nakeba. Because the creator built her by creating in her a receptive socket that is a procreative faculty. That's what a female is. That is true of female humans. It's true of female cows. It's true of female sheep. It's true of female goats. And the very same word for female and the very same significance is used to describe female humans, female cows, female sheep, female goats. They have a receptive socket that is a procreative faculty. That's what the Hebrew says. That's what it says. That's what it actually means to be female. Now, what does the car mean? And don't tell me you're going to get into that. Of course I'm going to get into that. What does the car mean? <laughs> Not what you think. E- even the Hebrews weren't that blunt. Zakar means to be remembered. What? <laughs> to be remembered? Yes. Why do you th- It's amazing. The idea of male in Hebrew comes from the verb to remember. And Absalom says, I don't have a male heir to keep my name in remembrance, Zakar. So that when a woman marries a man, she takes the man's name. Well, maybe not anymore in our society. But it's through the male that the family line is carried on. That's the concept of male in the Hebrew. It's to be had in remembrance and to keep the name in remembrance from generation to generation. Those are the Hebrew ideas. Zakar and Nukeba. That's what the word means. 
And Paul is using the words, the very same words in Greek to translate the Hebrew zakar and nikebah, very same words that Paul uses, male and female. He doesn't just say men and women as some translate. He says male and female. The very same words that Jesus used in Matthew 19 when he said, he that made them in the beginning made them male and female, zakar and nukebah. The words that Paul used are the very words used to translate those Hebrew words into Greek by Jesus and Paul. So that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the natural function. They don't have the necessary equipment. They weren't physically created and designed by God for that type of relationship. Female with female don't have the necessary equipment to engage in procreative activity. It's receptive socket with receptive socket. You can't couple it. It doesn't work that way. That's what that's saying. The natural use. Receptive socket with receptive socket is contrary to the created design of the female procreative faculty. That's what Paul said. That's exactly what he said. And he only featured one thing about female with female deviation. And that female with devi female deviation, I use the word deviation because it is a deviation. I, I try not to be pejorative in the word. It is a deviation from the created norm. You know, we talk about standard deviation in math, and deviation doesn't necessarily have in and of itself any moral judgment associated with it. But that's what it is. It is a deviation from the created norm. Female with female is a deviation. It's a deviation from the created norm because female and female were not created to procreate with each other. Doesn't fit. So then I'm not going to get into details. We say, well, well, well what happens then? Well, that, that, that Paul doesn't say that, so I'm not going into that. That you don't need to get into because that goes beyond the text. I'm not going into it. I'm just telling you what the text says. But when he gets to the next part, he's got a lot more to say. So, Scripture defines male and female sexually. And a male possesses male procreative faculties. And a female possesses female procreative faculties. And Jewish parents observe these at birth. And they treated every little child born with male or female procreative faculties accordingly. And it's written in their law. They were supposed to recognize the distinction between male and female, whether it was their children or whether it was their animals, and they were supposed to respond accordingly. There are male and female humans. There are male and female goats. There are male and female cows. There are male and female sheep. And a similar idea pertains to them all as to the definition of male and female. And it was to be recognized at birth and treated accordingly. That's what Paul's saying. 
Now, this is the last thing that he says. The last thing that he says here is even more, he, he doesn't, even more detailed. He doesn't specify just one thing, that it's, a, that it's not natural. It's contrary to the created use of the procreative faculties. He doesn't just say that. He says four things about male with male deviation. Likewise also the males, leaving the natural use of the female. He says, first of all, it is a deviation of the created use of the male procreative faculties. It's a deviation from that. The male body was not designed that way, to be used that way. It's forsaking the natural use of the female. It's contrary to and deviates from the created design of the male body and its procreative faculties. Secondly, it's powerful. The second word that he uses, he says, likewise also the men, forsaking the natural use of the female, burned in their lust toward one another. Burned. It's powerful. There is an intense libido, an inward burning, engulfing, addictive, compelling, compulsive, a consuming passion, drive, or orientation. They burned in their lust toward one another. What he describes is it's not only unnatural, he says it's also extremely powerful. An inward burning drive and libido to do this. Thirdly, says it's disgraceful. He says males with males doing something shameful. Saying that male with male is not something to be proud about or boast about. It is inherently connected with shame. And fourthly, he says it is harmful and receiving in themselves the due recompense of their aberration. He says there is a tendency to negative bodily consequences that the practices tend to physical harm for those practice it. Unnatural, powerful, disgraceful, harmful. That's what he says. So well, how does he know all that? How would he know that? I, I don't want to speculate about how he knew it. How he said it. I don't want to think anything bad about him at all or anything else, I'll say this much. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And exactly how he knows those things, I don't know. I can't say. But he describes male with male deviation in such a way, it's very hard to miss the truth 
clarity and sadness of what he, of what he says. He says it's unnatural. He says it's powerful, disgraceful, and harmful. And he doesn't say that out of hatred. He doesn't say that out of phobia. He says that out of compassion. He says it with hope. He says it in gospel love. He doesn't say it with a spirit of moral superiority or hatred or hate speech. He says it in compassion and in hope. Such were some of you. There were some people in the church in Corinth that had been given over to that kind of lifestyle and God had delivered them from it. And you were washed. You were cleansed. He said it in hope. So now, that brings me then thirdly and finally to the application. So what? First of all, brothers and sisters, this calls us to mercy. We need to relate to those whom God has given up to sin with gospel compassion. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Matthew 9, 13. And verily I say to you, to the Pharisees, that the publicans and harlots are going into the kingdom of heaven before you. Secondly, it calls us to humility. We should not look down on people that God has given over to degradation and deviation. But rather, with gospel humility that says, who makes you to differ? What do you have that you didn't receive? There, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, there but for the grace of God go I. And what? Are we any better than they? God, God forbid. But we before said to Jews and Gentiles that we're all under sin. We all deserve to go to hell. We shouldn't look down on anybody or think ourselves better than anybody. We should look at our society in its degradation and deviation with humility. And thirdly, purity. James says in James 1.27 that we should keep ourselves unspotted for the world, from the world. And fourthly, testimony. He that has my word, let him tell it faithfully. We have the word of God. We shouldn't be yelling at people and hating people or writing people off. But we ought to be loving and compassionate, open, honest, transparent, gentle, gracious, merciful. Not trying to hide from the world because we're afraid of them, because we're afraid of what they're going to do to us if we tell them the truth. Because you know, dear people, that the things that Paul said in Romans 1 are extremely unpopular today. You know they're not, quote, politically correct. But out of love and compassion, not out of the fear of man, but out of the kind of perfect love that casts out fear, he that has my word, let him say it faithfully. Let's tell the truth in love. And pray, finally, that God will own his holy word, that we should recognize these telltale signs of divine abandonment in our society and pray for a powerful revival of gospel religion, for a widespread spiritual awakening of our lost neighbors and relatives and work associates and fellow citizens.
Well, we still have in God we trust written on our coins, but get out of here, God, written all over society. That's the standard fare. In God we trust. We just don't want anything to do with them. That we would have a powerful sending forth of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the word, a radical transformation of our society. Let's pray to that end. Mercy, humility, purity, testimony, and prayer. May God be pleased, dear people, to bless his holy word for our good, for the good of our fellow men, and for the glory of God. Let's pray.